Amen. It's good to be in the Lord's house again. And uh, you take your Bibles and tur- turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. <clears throat> I've enjoyed the special music this week and the choir, even on Sunday evening with the Dimlows. I mentioned to him how I enjoyed the choir singing. What a great job y'all did. It was just a blessing. And I even commented on him directing the choir, and he seemed to have a lot of skill in that regard. And then I realized, maybe not so much. I, no, that was good. Yeah, that was good, and I enjoyed that. appreciate everybody that's extended hospitality to us. That's all of you, actually, and one, one way or another, to one degree or another, and we just want you to know we appreciate it, and um, this is the third time we've been here, other than when my son was married in this church. This is the third time we've been here, and we, my wife and I, we feel at home here, and uh, it's a place we love, and we're, we're, we were glad to be able to be here this week, and you know, as a preacher, I just appreciate you receiving what I've brought with me this week. And uh, I mentioned at the outset, there were about five or six other messages that I really wanted to preach. I mean, that, that's where my own heart was at. It's what I desired to do. <clears throat> and the Lord began to deal with my heart about some of these things. And, and I really, even Sunday morning when I stood up to preach, I was like, I really don't want to preach on this, but I felt compelled to do so. And so I can only hope that it's been a help. That has been my only motive as the Lord's directed me this week is to be a help. It hasn't really been to make anybody feel bad or anything like that. It's to be a help to you and not just today, not just this week, but into the future because I hope we've been able to share some things this week that can kind of resonate with you as the days and the weeks and months and years go along and you realize that when troublesome times come into your life, there's, there's help for that, and, and we don't have to turn to the world for that help, and, and God and the Bible can give us strength and can give us wisdom, and so we're going we're gonna to finish up tonight, it's a message that I've entitled, The Process for Soul Rest, and there's lots of different passages that you could go to that would certainly give us uh, some help in that regard. I always liked particularly a phrase in this text that we're about to read, and as I got to looking at it a little closer a few years ago, I realized that even the broader text around this singular phrase actually provided a pretty, some pretty good insight about how to manage our lives and our souls when we find ourselves in distressful and stressful times. So, I want to begin here by reading in 1 Samuel chapter 30. I think we're going to read the whole text. We won't cover all of these verses in detail, but I want to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 10. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein, and slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away, and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives, and their sons, and their daughters 
were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David, and David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men that were with him, and he came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, for two hundred abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bizor. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful tonight for the privilege that we have to come into your presence. And Lord, we just pray earnestly that you would take your word tonight and once again this week use it to minister to the hearts of those that are gathered here. We trust you to do that. We know that there's not really anything in what a man can say that can facilitate that. But Lord, we know that you, being the God that you are, can take your word, you can take a sermon that's preached, and even with all the frailties of the one that's doing the preaching, and you can get honor and glory to yourself, you can exalt your son Jesus Christ, and you can challenge and encourage your people. And so, Father, I pray that that might be the case tonight. And pray, Father, that when it's all said and done and you've ministered to our hearts, that we would give you the praise and the glory and the honor for it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, um, we, the last three nights, we've talked about Job, a struggling soul. We talked about David, a guilty soul. And we talked about Solomon last night, a secularized soul. And really, that's just a small sampling of all the people whose lives are laid out to one degree or another in the Bible. I think you could probably just go through your Bible, and as the characters came to us in the narrative, we'd be able to follow their lives and realize that most all of these people, men and women, faced struggles, faced times of difficulty, adversity, uh, discouragement, depression in their life. Some of those managed to handle that appropriately and commit those things to the Lord and just continue to seek Him and then others, a few of them didn't and of course there were consequences for that and, and um, so I think it's important to recognize that. In fact, I think I may have mentioned this list uh, at the outset of the week but uh, you know, I've, when I was preaching this at home, there were several others in particular that I dealt with and um, when I give it to you tonight, and really the only reason I'm doing that is because I've preached three of these sermons and so when I say this now, you might have a little better context as to what was going on when I had these sermon titles. One of them was Cain, a rebellious soul. There was the Israelites as a nation who had a murmuring soul. Hannah had a sor sorrowful soul. Saul, 
had a paranoid soul, he'd have been sent to the psychiatrist's office almost immediately. He had a paranoid soul. Elijah had a fearful soul. Jonah had a bitter soul. Jeremiah had a desperate soul. Remember at one point he said, I'm just not going to talk anymore. I'm just not preaching anymore. That's just where he got to. Nebuchadnezzar, remember he ate grass for seven years. And you talk about somebody in rough shape. He had a deranged soul. And the demoniac of the Gadarenes, you remember him, he was in bad shape too. Lived among the tombs, cutting himself. Didn't have enough clothes on, didn't have any clothes on. That sounds like a lot of people today. He was in a bad place. A possessed soul. Now all that that he was doing was evidence of the fact that he was possessed by devils. But even in that terrible place, he found deliverance in Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Isn't that something that's remarkable? In fact, the people came out and said they found him clothed and sitting and in his right mind. You know, it's hard to think about that and not realize God's able to do anything in the heart of people. There's not any problem, any issue, any depression, any difficulty, any trial we're going to face in life. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. Doesn't mean there's not going to be some difficult days. But that God does not have the ability to help us have victory in our life. As I had preached through all of that, by the time I arrived at this passage, and I, from the outset of this series when I was preparing a number of years ago, I felt like I would spend some time here because of where it says David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's always been an encouragement to me that he did that. And so I felt quite certain that I would be dealing with that at some point. And so by, by the time I arrived at this point in my series, I realized more than ever just how relevant this text in 1 Samuel chapter 30 actually was. And uh, I don't really know if I would have seen it so readily if it weren't for the fact that I'd already covered a great deal of material in regards to this issue beforehand. And all of a sudden when I came back and I read this and I read the context of this, it wasn't just any longer the single statement that David made, but it was a whole process that unfolds right here in these verses that we read. It unfolds before us in a very, really a very few short verses. And um, I do realize that um, there was a whole series of events that led up to this crisis where David finds himself. And we're going to briefly review those things in just a minute. And of course, there were a whole series of events that follow these few short verses, and we're not gonna, and uh, they're not, they're immediately relevant to what's going on here, but not really immediate, re immediately relevant to what I want to deal with tonight. So we're gonna, we're probably gonna stop a little short of that. My purpose primarily this evening is to walk us through the process that David experienced from beginning to end. And how he dealt with the crisis that confronted him. How he managed a soul that had been disquieted. And how that soul was ultimately able to find soul rest. And I think this is a process that we can all implement. I don't think that there's anything, much like last night, I don't think there's anything here that we're going to look and we're going to see and we're going to say, boy, that's really complicated. I don't know if I can really do that. Now, 
we may struggle in the flesh to do some of it, but as far as the simplicity of it, I think all of us will be able to readily see that. And in fact, most of us have probably had this formula play out in our lives and maybe we didn't realize exactly what was going on at the time and maybe we wouldn't have been able to label it necessarily in different stages, but probably most of us have had these things play out in our lives and this process sometimes plays out in just a few minutes, maybe a few hours as seems to be the case here, but sometimes it might stretch out to a few days or even a few weeks or even a few months, particularly if we are having ongoing struggles in our life. But at the end of the day, the process is basically the same. And I think it's important to recognize that. The chain of events is really very similar, although the details may vary greatly. And as we go down through this passage, I think the formula is given to us in the following six phrases. These are the things we're going to address tonight. And all of these are important. The first thing that we note, and we're going to note, is that David wept. We're going to find that he was distressed. We're going to find that he encouraged himself. We're going to find that he inquired. We're going to find that David went. And we're going to find that David pursued. Some of that may not seem to make much sense now, but as we move through the text, I believe that it will. So let us, just for the sake of clarity and making sure we understand where we're at in the narrative, go back a couple of chapters and just read some verses uh, to help us consider what landed David in this difficult place. So we're going to drop back to chapter 27, and let's read verses 1 through 4. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in the coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose, and he passed over with six hundred men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul, that David was fled to Gath and he sought no more again for him. So what in essence is happening here is David has become so fatigued by these years of as, as a refugee and as a fugitive running for Saul. And I'm not suggesting this was a good decision on his part, but nevertheless he decided he was going to go live among the Philistines. That's what he did. And apparently he did that in... A, Quite a bit of peace for some time. If you drop down to chapter 28 and look in verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go out with me to the battle, thou and thy men. And David said to Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. So the Philistines are about to go to battle with Israel. And Achish wants to take David and his men with them. And David, in essence, is agreeing to go to fight against the nation of Israel. Drop down to verse 29, or chapter 29 and look in verse 2. And the lords of the Philistines passed, by, passed on by hundreds and by thousands. 
But David and his men passed on in the rearward with Achish. Then said the princes of the Philistines, What do these Hebrews here? And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, Is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which hath been with me these days or these years? And I have found no fault in him, since he fell unto me unto this day. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place, which thou hast appointed him, and let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith should he reconcile himself unto his master, should it not be with the heads of these men? Is not this David, of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying, Saul slew his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So the Philistines knew a little bit about David, and what they knew made them not trust him. So they said, he's got to go home. There's no better way for him to get in good favor with Saul than with some of our heads. So he's got to go home. Then we get to chapter 30, and look in verses 1 through 3 again. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day, they had been sent home, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. So during David and his men's absence to fight with the Philistines, the Amalekites invaded and plundered the city where they were living. They burned the city to the ground. They carried their, women, their wives and their children away captive. You know, I don't know if anybody else ever thinks about anything like this, but sometimes I wonder what it would be like, how I would respond if my wife and I drove up to our house after having been gone somewhere for a few hours and it was burned to the ground. That would be a difficult thing to assimilate and to get past. But you know, there's one thing about that. If, that. if that were to ever occur, you know, I've kind of thought about this scenario in my mind. The thing about it is, is when I, when I turned on 8th Street, we live on 9th Street. When I turned on 8th Street, I'd probably see some smoke. And I'd say, hey, that looks, that's close to where we're at. And then when I got down to the close of the intersection in 8th and Dixie, I'd see the red and blue lights flashing. And I'd turn the corner and I'd realize these fire trucks and these police cars are right there at the corner that my house is one house down. I'd say, boy, that fire, somebody's house is on fire close to our house. And I, it can't be my house. But then as I get out of my car and work, walk down to the end of the block and I look and it actually is my house that's been on fire. It's not like these guys came up to Ziglag and they didn't realize anything was going on before they got right there to where the gate of the city had been. How far away must they have been before they saw on the horizon there something's not right. 
And as they drew a little closer, the picture became a little clearer. And by the time they were within a few hundred yards of that place, they realized their city had been destroyed. By the time they come upon it and they begin to investigate and sift through the rubble, they realize that there's no human remains there. And that means whoever did this carried our families away. I'm just distressed thinking about it. Can you imagine, can you imagine what these men must have been feeling in their soul? So this is where we're at. This is where we pick up in verse 4. And what we see in verse 4 is that David wept. Look, if you will, in verse 4. The Bible says, Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. The Bible says here at the beginning of verse 4, and this is an important thing, and I I really haven't had occasion in the sermons that I've preached to this point to to, uh, bring this to our attention and the possibility of this, but the Bible says in verse 4, all the people with him wept. This was a collective catastrophe. This wasn't something that was just impacting and affecting David. It was impacting and affecting all the men that were with him. And these were men that had been with him, some of them as long as 15 years, most of them for a good number of years. And you know, I think about a collective catastrophe, and that's really the worst kind of adversity. Because then everyone in that circle of ours is impacted by it. This can be true in a family. A family can have something happen in the context of that family and everyone in the family is adversely impacted by that. It can happen in the context of a church. Something can happen in the context of a church and everyone in the church is adversely impacted by that. Really, there's a sense in which those kind of catastrophes are even worse than if I'm just singularly dealing with a catastrophe in my life. And you know why? Because there was no one available who could provide encouragement from outside the tragedy. There was no one standing outside David and his men that could come to them and say, it's going to be okay. God knows what He's doing. Have faith in God. Believe in Him. He's got a purpose in this. Let's pray together. Let's read the Bible together. Because they were all suffering. When everybody's suffering, it makes it increasingly difficult. There was no one available who could provide encouragement from outside the tragedy that all of these men were experiencing. Listen, when everyone is suffering, the suffering is felt more acutely. It's one thing for me to be suffering, but then if I have to look around, and you know, we've experienced this as a church. I've suffered as a pastor over a few times over the last 32 years, and that, that's hard and difficult as it is. But when it's something that impacts our church, and I look around and I see other people are suffering with it as well and suffering because of it, it's even more acute under those circumstances. And this is where David was at. Because when everyone is struggling, soul unrest is compounded. 
Interestingly enough, when everyone in a group is facing adversity, the sense of isolation can easily increase. And even though you have a group, you can still feel very isolated because everyone in your group is suffering as well. There's just simply, it can seem that there's no one to help. A common challenge, disappointment, or adversity tends to create more readily an atmosphere of despair. The next thing that I notice here in chapter 4 is not only that all the people wept, but that that means David himself wept. In fact, in verse 4 it says, Then David, it specifically acknowledges him, Then David and the people that were with, with him lifted up their voices and wept. David wept. Now you... You have to think about this, and there's a sense in which this is true of the other men that were with him, but let's focus on David. David, would, how many of you would agree with me that David was no sentimental softy? He wasn't a guy that just wept at the drop of a hat. I, that's just not my view of David. And one reason is because David was a battle-hardened warrior. David was a man who was acquainted with violence, death, and destruction. In fact, you may remember, he was collecting the material for the temple, to build the temple. And he basically had gathered it all, and God sent a prophet to him and said, you're not going to build the temple. We're going to leave that task to your son. And God said, the reason you're not going to build the temple is because you have bloody hands. You're a man of war. David was acquainted with violence, death, and destruction. Listen, he didn't cry every time someone lost their life or was permanently marred by violence on the battlefield. He was a man who had seen a lot of terrible things. And in a sense, for good or for bad, his heart had been kind of hardened against those things. It's just a coping mechanism. People do that when they're facing those kinds of things to be able to press on and to keep doing the things that need to be done. David was one of those men. But not only that, he had for 15 years now been carrying the burdens of a fugitive. He had been on the run for 15 years. I mean, he was staying in caves and in the forest. He was just living. He was, he was a survivalist. This is what he was doing and all I'm saying is this was no sissy here. It wasn't like one of these guys, just the slightest little thing happens and he cries. My hamster died. <laughs> you know, that wasn't David. And yet here, the Bible says, and you know, all of these other men, really the same thing could be said about, I mean, these were, these were tough men and they were all crying. It's really a pretty sad scene if you think about it. It was a very bleak day. In fact, it says here in verse 4 that they wept till they had no more power to weep. So that means they cried themselves out. Maybe some of you have experienced that before. You've just wept till you had no more tears to cry. We can face things in life that will bring us to that point. Their souls, if you will, were ringed out in tears. 
And you know, it just brings me back to something we had mentioned even back when we were preaching about Job. Life can be very cruel and brutal. Life can bring blow after blow and then in one fell swoop crush us beyond recognition. You remember we talked about Job 14.1 on Sunday. Man that's born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Job 5.7, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so here David is, he's facing that very real thing that's a part of all of our lives. In the first part of verse 6, I noticed that David was distressed. Notice in verse 6, the Bible says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Okay, there's a number of things here that is worthy of our attention. The first thing is we have very clearly described for us the state of David's soul. The Bible says David was greatly distressed. This word distressed, it comes from a Hebrew word that means to press. It involves the idea of something that's very narrow, like, a, like a, in geography we would, uh, it would be like a straight, just a very narrow place, a place that's tight to fit into. Brother Dimlo, I think on Saturday we were out and he was talking about finding some gold mine or something. And some of you guys went and looked around in there and crawled through that. And I was like, dude, that's not for me. Because I, I would get claustrophobic. And particularly if I had to fit through a, a tight spot where I even thought I was about to get stuck, I'd probably start crying like a little girl. I, I, I would, that would be unnerving to me. So... You know, physically going through a cave or a mine or something like that. We might be able to manage that. We might be able to do that. But I'll tell you what, there's things in life that can squeeze down on us. And boy, it gets real tight. And there's like not much wiggle room. And you're, want, you're wanting a little liberty here. You're wanting to be able to turn around and see what's going on. But see where, you're, where you've come from. And there's just no room to move. You're in a straight. You're being pressed. The idea there is even, it even carries the idea of being, here's the word again, vexed. But not only was he distressed, you'll notice the Bible says he was greatly distressed so you're in a narrow place and then it gets even more narrow when it's got about as narrow as you think it can be all of a sudden it even gets more narrow this word greatly Webster's defines it as with great force or violence this is where David was at. He was distressed greatly. Well, what was the reason for David's distress? Well, we've touched on some of that. Some of it's readily apparent. Just the idea that uh, what had happened at Ziglag and the fact that he had been a fugitive for 15 years. But there's another element added here in respect to David's soul rest. The Bible says in the middle part of verse 6 that he was distressed greatly for the people spake of stoning him. Now, who are these people? <clears throat> they're, they're, we talked about it last night. They are, or the night before last, they are the people that in Chronicles are referred to as his mighty men. I mean, 
You go over and read that passage. These are men that would do anything for David. I mean, if he, just, if he just inadvertently said something, just said something in passing, like, oh, what I would do for a drink of well, drink of water out of the well of Bethlehem. Three men hear that, and they go get it for him. These were men who were willing to put it all on the line. They were willing to live the life that he lived. They were willing to suffer the things that he suffered. They were willing to sacrifice the things that he sacrificed. But now, in this hour of tragedy, they were talking about stoning him. This was his own people. These weren't people that were Known enemies. These weren't people that you'd been looking at. This wasn't Saul. This wasn't people he had identified for 15 or 20 years that was against him. These were people who he had committed his life to. And now they're speaking of stoning him. So you see, David now was not only dealing with the personal loss, he was also dealing with the very real dissipation of what had been a major component of his support structure. Because say what you will, these last 15 years, yes, David was trusting God, but God had used these men to encourage him. And now they're gone. Now they seem to be abandoning ship. David If you just think about all of these men, 600 of them, David was now the lowest among them as it relates to the assault against his soul. I mean, they weren't talking about stoning each other. They were talking about stoning David because David was the leader. David was the man that they had been looking to. David is the man that brought them to Ziglag. David is the man that led them off for a few days to fight with the Philistines against the Israelites. And now here we are back at home and tragedy has befallen us. And consequently, they're speaking of stoning him. David's distress is possibly compounded by the knowledge. And think about this. It's possibly compounded by the knowledge that he had been anointed by the prophet, by the prophet, as are anointed by the prophet and priest of God Samuel to be the next king of Israel. So, some 15 to 20 years earlier, Samuel had stood in his dad's home, called him in from tending the sheep, and anointed him the next king of Israel. And now here he is all these years later. He's been running for 15 years. And now his own men are speaking of stoning him. And this is not what was supposed to happen. Have any of you found yourself in a place in life and you said, this wasn't supposed to happen? I know I have. Like several times. Well, what's going on? This one's, those people weren't supposed to leave the church. And they certainly weren't supposed to leave the church like they did. That wasn't supposed to happen. That kid wasn't supposed to do that. Where did that come from? What's this about? Right? So it doesn't measure up to the expectations. What a far cry from David has slain his ten thousands to being threatened by his own men in the presence of their plundered city. He who had been loved by his enemy's son, that's Jonathan, 
is now despised by those who had been his most reliable friends. I'm just saying the distress is real. It is significant and it is quite frankly overwhelming. You see, if we can't appreciate that, we'll not appreciate the process that unfolds going forward. But before we move on to the next verse, it's important to note this because this will give us a little perspective should we ever find ourselves in a place similar to this. Because the Bible says all the people spake of stoning him. And, you know, you'd ask yourself the question, well, why would they do that? They had been in this together for a long time now. Is it now that all of, is it now that all of a sudden they, they don't like David for some reason? Somehow they've developed the hatred for him? Well, we're not left to guess about this. The Bible tells us why they were contemplating this course of action. It says in the latter part of verse 6, not the very end, kind of the middle there, but the soul because, so they were talking about stoning him because, so we're about to have why they were, because the soul of all the people was grieved. i just ask you this at the outset here. Did you know where the grief was centered? The soul of all these people was grieved. Just remember this, and, and then we'll move on, but it, it, it's good to make note of this, that grieving people can potentially be unreasonable people. It's important to be aware of that because all of us at some point in life, we're going to be on the other end of that and have to deal with grieving people. And when it seems like they're being unreasonable, they very likely are. But when we can attribute that charitably to the fact that it's because they're grieving, it will enable us to minister to them more effectively. If we just naturally jump to the conclusion that they're being unreasonable because they're unspiritual or they're this or they're that, then we'll tend to be very unkind towards them. But when people get in a spot like these men were in, they do tend to be unreasonable. It's important, I think, to remember that. The soul of all the people was grieved, you know, because great loss, there's one thing about great loss, and I don't know that there are really any exceptions to this, there may be, but grace, great loss looks for blame. When we lose something that's dear and precious, we want to know whose fault is this. And human nature is going to generally find something and most often someone to whom they can attribute that blame and uh, I think it's important to recognize that as well. It's not unusual for the blame to be misplaced. This was the case with David and his people, and it was one of the very things that compounded David's grief. So with a soul at such a low state, what is one to do? What hope is there? Are we at this point where David's at, are we doomed to despair? Is our only option here to spiral out of control and be dashed asunder on the rocks of our own choices? Is that the only option we have before us? Well, no, quite frankly, it's not. In fact, David models another option. Look, if you will, at the very end of verse 6. We didn't read this a minute ago. The very end of verse 6, this is the phrase in this narrative that we're probably all familiar with. But David encouraged himself 
in the Lord is God. That first word is kind of important, the word but. Because given all of the scenario that we've just laid before you, and all the picture that's been painted in this narrative, the Bible says, but David. So what that tells us, what that alerts us to, is David is about to do something. He's about to take a course of action. He's about to have an attitude and spirit that's not what you would expect given where he was at. You know, maybe when we're at our lowest point, we should say, but. Yes, this is real. Yes, this is happening. Yes, this is hard. Yes, others in my circle are struggling with this too and they're taking it out on me. Yes, that may be, but there's always a but. In fact, as I was thinking about that, I think Brother Humphrey mentioned this verse earlier in the week when we were talking. Psalm 42, 5, the psalmist says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his God. You know, it's a good thing to know when our soul is to cast down, to know that I'm, I'm yet going to praise him. I may be struggling with it today. I may be wrestling with it today. I may be finding it difficult to find some reason to praise him today. But I'm going to hope in him knowing that the day is coming when I will yet praise him again. And even if it's not in this life, although I believe in most cases it will be, just like we talked about last, let's not have a secularized soul here. Let's realize there's something beyond this. There's coming a day when we will always praise him. There's coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. There's coming a day when there'll be no more death, no more pain. I will praise Him again. This, this is not even up for debate. This is a solid fact. And I know sometimes when we're having trouble in life, it can seem like it's dragging out for 10 million years. But it's not. It's not. Then the overall scope of things in the light of eternity, in fact, it's actually pretty short-lived. Our low point, listen to me, our low point defines us only if we allow it to do so. Our low point defines us only if we bail out in the low point. Because probably all of us can think of people who have faced great tragedy in their life, great trial, great great difficulty and God gave them the grace to weather that and to move through that one day at a time and they came out on the other side of it and they were better, they were more spiritual, they were more spiritually mature, they were closer to God and their legacy is going to be a lot different than it would have been if at that low point that had bailed out on God and everything that was eternal and true and holy. So let's remember that. The Bible says, but David encouraged himself. This word encouraged comes from a Hebrew word that means to seize, to be strong, to be obstinate, to conquer. You know, I suppose lots of times the idea of being obstinate, and maybe we would more likely use the word stubborn, that's generally taken in a negative way, and I understand that, but you know, there are some things we ought to be obstinate about, Right? There are some things we ought to have a little stubbornness about us. And quite frankly, we should be obstinate when it comes to the state of our soul. We should be determined 
to conquer any unrest that finds its way into my soul. Yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I'm having trouble. Yes, this has gone wrong. But I refuse to give in to it. You know, you can say you refuse to give in to it. That doesn't mean it's going to let up. I mean, I've lived through a few days, like every five minutes I was having to tell myself, I'm not giving in to this. I'm not giving up now. I'm not giving up. I always, I tell, I've told my church for years now and told this to myself on one occasion particularly, that by the grace of God, I would never leave my church when things were bad. For one thing, I don't think that's very much integrity to bail out when things aren't going well. When, you know, quite honestly, I was probably part of the problem. Right? Let's be honest. So why would I bail out then? And you know, when things are going great at my church, I don't want to leave. Why would I leave this place? It's a great place. <laughs> right? Why would I want to leave? It is all a matter of perspective. It is all a matter of sometimes having a little stubbornness about us. Been a little obstinate about things and say, well, yeah, this is hard and I'm struggling with this and it's probably, it's going to maybe take me a while to get over it, but I'm going to stay at it. I'm not just going to give in to this. I'm not just going to raise the white flag and say, well, this is it. This, you know, nothing can be done about this. This is a hopeless situation. No, I'm going to be obstinate about the, the desire that I have to always strive to have peace in my soul. And it's not that I can create it myself. But it's a matter that I'm depending upon God and my hope is in God and that He can do that no matter how bleak the circumstances may look. just need to refuse to be discouraged. You say, well, I am refusing it, but I'm still struggling. Well, just keep refusing to be that way. I will not be moved. You know that song? I shall not be, I shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the waters. I shall not be moved. You know, there's some times we ought to have that spirit and attitude about us. I shall not be moved. I will not give in to self-pity. The very minute we find ourselves thinking, man, oh, woe is me. Why? We need, we need to ask the Lord to give us an awareness of that. And as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. Just don't tolerate it. Don't put up with it in our lives. Listen, folks, there's nothing saying we've got to tolerate it. There's no inalienable law that says, well, when you're starting to have self-pity, you must live with that for a while. We don't have to tolerate it. We don't have to put up with it. And I'm suggesting that we shouldn't put up with it. You'll notice the Bible says he encouraged himself in the Lord. He did this for himself. And the reason is because there was no earthly help to come to his aid. This is what makes this all the more remarkable. That David encouraged himself in the Lord. If David didn't do it, there was no human comfort at his side to help bear his burden, disappointment, grief, and distress. He was going to have to do this by himself himself and for himself but keep reading because it says he encouraged himself in the Lord his God so the key thing here is that he did it for himself but not through himself 
He took the initiative to act in a way that would secure the desired end. Listen, when we're low, we should never be afraid to reach up high where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father. We'll always be willing to do that. And in fact, the lower we are, maybe the higher we should reach. And David changed his focus. He exercised his will to gaze upward instead of outward. He determined in his own soul to think about God and for his hope to be in God. Listen, when we condition ourselves to think like that, you know, practice it in the good times. Sometimes part of our problem is when things are going good, we don't think about God too much because we don't feel an urgency of having His presence in our life and His help. But the truth of the matter is we do need Him all the time. So it's a good thing if we just practice in the good times. Practice in the, the little trials. You know, a little trouble comes along, a little irritation. Don't just, don't just write that off and say, well, you know, I'll get over this in a couple of days. Look to the Lord in those things. Because mark it down. There's going to come a time where there's going to be some things in our life. And we're not just going to be able to push it aside and play like it's not a big deal. And we'll need Him there. And it will be good if we have practiced to that end. I think the songwriter hit just the right note when he penned these words. When all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. You know, you might think, lots of people quote this, that part of the verse and leave it at that. But there's actually some other things that David did. Look in verse 8. The Bible says, And David, and David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And then the Lord answered him and told him to pursue and that he would overtake them. And on this occasion, he told David that he would recover all. So David obviously was helped by that. But what I want you to note here is that part of David encouraging himself in the Lord is that he inquired of the Lord. This word inquired means to ask counsel. In fact, you look in the verse before, and he had Abiathar, the high priest, to bring the ephod. And I don't know if I understand everything that's written about that. It had Urim and Thummim in there. And uh, it was an arrangement that God had divinely ordained where those in leadership over the nation of Israel, they could go and they could ask counsel of God, but it was always questions that were yes and no answers. And so they would ask a question and God through Urim and Thummim would either say yes or no. And so that's what David's doing here. But again, the important thing is that he inquired of the Lord. David, having looked to the Lord for encouragement, he's encouraged to ask counsels. Because when we get in tough times, and when we're looking to God, and as we're looking to God, and we're reminded of who He is, then it might dawn us, well, maybe I should ask Him what to do. He seems like He might know what to do. Maybe he would be able to give me some help. If in dire straits, it's a good thing to inquire of the Lord. Listen, we never get so low that we sink beyond God's ability to hear and answer prayer. It's not like cell phone reception. I guess it's not as bad today as it was 10 or 15 years ago. But you know you'd get in some places and you were too far away from a tower and you couldn't call out and couldn't receive any God. It's not that way with God. You can never get so far away that you lose reception. He can always hear. In fact, not only can He always hear, He always wants to hear. 
Especially the Lord, I think, hears desperate prayer. Because desperate prayer tends to be sincere, humble prayer. You know, there's something about being desperate. It changes your prayer life, at least for a season. You pray a little more. It's a little more fervent. And even though God may seem like far away, boy, you're knocking on the door. Help! I need help! Tell me what to do! Give me a visitation! God hears those pleas. God doesn't turn a deaf ear to that. After all, we are His children. Amen? And He loves us as such. It's important to note that. And another thing that's important about this is note that David was not praying for comfort, but for direction. He wanted to know what he should do. Lord, should I? Sometimes it does not occur to us that in the depths of our despair, we should maybe do something. I say that because the tendency, and we talked some about this on Sunday, the tendency can be when we're facing discouragement and, and particularly if it mutates into, into depression, the tendency is to sink into lethargy, which is the breeding ground of even more discouragement and more depression. Just get a feeling like we don't want to do anything. We just don't want to get out of bed and we might do it because things are being required of us. But we don't want to do anything. But it might ought to occur to us that in our darkest days is when we actually need to be doing something. It just might be that our encouragement will grow in the context of prayers that ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Instead of prayers that say, Lord, I want you to do this. And this, this challenges me because I know in my own life, in times past, when there are desperate things afoot, my inclination is to pray, Lord, please do this. And when I came and looked at this with different eyes a couple of years ago, I thought to myself, maybe that's not the best thing to pray. Maybe the better thing to pray is, Lord, what should I do? What do I need to do? Because, you know, God's going to do what He's supposed to do. The real question is whether I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. The Bible says He inquired at the Lord because having, the Bible says He encouraged Himself in the Lord as God. So having turned His focus toward God, He is found inquiring of God. And, you know, really turning our focus toward God, encouraging ourselves in the Lord our God, should really not be so much. Listen to me. It really should not be so much about getting God's attention as it is about giving God our attention. Because I'm telling you right now, every trouble, every difficulty, every adversity that comes into my life, there's at least one thing God is saying. Give me your attention. Look at me. Pay attention to me. We're way too often worried about getting His attention when He's more concerned about getting our attention. And on this occasion, David did that. Notice in verse 9. David went, the Bible says in verse 9, So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, 
came to the brook Bizor, where those that were left behind stayed. So the fact that it says David went simply means this, indicates this, and that is that he acted. It would have been very, I mean, think about it, the scenario that was laid out for us here in the past. It would have been very easy just to sit down in front of the city in sackcloth and ashes and mourn for six months. And I'm not saying there aren't things in life that require a period of mourning. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is sometimes we can get too caught up in that. And what we find David doing is he acted. People say, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Look at everything that's happened. Look at what I'm facing. Look at what I'm dealing with. I don't know what to do. Well, the reality is is that we may not know what to do about the present crisis, but I do know what to do. You say, well, what's that, preacher? Just keep doing what I've been doing. Do what you know to do. You know, when we're in a crisis in life, the Bible still says what it's always said. If the Bible said to do a certain thing, we can still do that, even in a crisis. If the Bible says not to do a thing, we can still not do that thing, whatever it is, even in a crisis. You know, we let the devil fool us into thinking when we get into these places in our life that we, we're, we're, we're at a loss. I don't know where to go from here. But in more times than not, we just keep going and doing the same things we've all... And I mentioned a couple of sermons ago that two of my most... Uh, the times that I was most rattled in life occurred on a Sunday morning. You know what I wanted to do on those Sunday mornings? Both of them. I wanted to get undressed, crawl back in bed, pull the covers over my head, curl up into the fetal position, and just lay there. And the fact is, I could have done that and somebody else would have taken care of the services. Could have just sent word I'm sick, because I was. <laughs> but by the grace of God, and looking back on it, as hard as it was, I'm convinced it's the best thing I could have done. I stayed dressed. At 9 o'clock, I walked out the door, got in a vehicle, and drove to church and greeted people when they came in and stood up and taught Sunday school and preached and went back and did the same thing on Sunday evening. By the grace of God, I was able to do that, literally, by the grace of God. It's not like I didn't even shed some tears that morning in church. I did. In fact, some of it was of a nature that I needed to tell the church what was going on because it was only a matter of a short period of time before questions would have been asked. So I even shed some tears that morning and that evening in church. But imagine what it would have been if I'd have just curled up in bed and laid there for three. That would have made it a lot better, wouldn't have it? My guess is if I'd have done that, I probably wouldn't have felt like going on Wednesday night. Probably I'd have felt less like going on Wednesday night than I did on Sunday morning. And then I'd have even felt less like going on Sunday because then at some point you're like, well, when do I go back now? Now I'm ashamed to even go back. Now I don't even want to go back. Because now I've even got more questions to answer. Now I've even got more things to deal with. All I'm saying to you is this. When you find yourself in a place like this and your, your head's spinning and you don't know what to do about the crisis, listen, I get that. I get that. That may well be true. But you know you can keep doing what you've been doing. 
You know what I did the next day on Monday morning? I got up and drove a school bus. Not because I was thrilled about driving a school bus. Not because I felt like driving a school bus. Not because I felt like dealing with children that day and traffic and all of that. But because I said, if I stay home today, what about Tuesday? And I knew that was God's will for me. That didn't change just because of the crisis I was facing. Listen, I'm just saying this. Get the point. Keep doing the will of God. Am I saying it'll be easy? By no stretch am I trying to say that. But what I am saying is that in the long run, that's the best thing you can do. The Bible says he inquired of the Lord. The Lord told him what to do and he went. He didn't say, okay, now that I know what to do, I'm going to sit in sackcloth and ashes for six months. When the Lord showed him what he wanted, the Bible says he went. We've got to be real, real careful in our life about saying I don't feel like it. <laughs> no, if I, didn't do the thing, if I didn't do everything I didn't feel like, I wouldn't hardly do anything. There's lots of things I don't feel like doing. But part of spiritual maturity is doing things even when we don't feel like doing it. We just do it because we're supposed to do it. It's our duty to do it. It's our responsibility to do it. And by the grace of God, we just get up and do it. Maybe another way to put it is just to say this. Don't allow your crisis to hinder your faithfulness to God and to His Word. You're familiar with the verses, 2 Thessalonians 3.13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, But let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. Here's one. This is, this is a great one. I'm just going to read it to you. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there's no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's interesting that that part of the text opens with, Hast thou not known? And you know when we find ourselves in discouraging places, it might do us well to say, Have I not known? Has God not brought me through other things? Listen, I'm 59 years old. If I just want to stop and think about it, God's brought me through a lot in my life. God's delivered me many times in my life. God's given me strength that I would have never dreamed I could have. God did that. Have I not known? Yes, I know. I know He can. Sometimes we need somebody to ask us, have you not known? Because anybody that's been saved any length of time, we do know He can give strength where there is none. 2 Corinthians 12, His grace is sufficient. So much so Paul says, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in suffering for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am 
strong. You know, we want to be strong and we live most of our life weak. But if we just acknowledge our weakness and know that we are weak, we would know true strength and that His grace is sufficient. Then one last thing here in verse 10. But David pursued because there were some that stayed behind. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 men abode behind which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. So David stayed at it either, even when others couldn't and apparently in this case maybe wouldn't. You've got to be very careful about looking around and seeing how other people are dealing with their trials. That makes no difference to me. What matters is what God can do in my life. And what strength can He give to me? Being undaunted in our responsibilities is a great balm in the time of trial. Perseverance facilitates hope. You know, every day we get up in the midst of our trial and do what we're supposed to do. That makes us think, well, you know, tomorrow, by the grace of God, I can do this again. And next week, by the grace of God, I can do this again. And next month, by the grace of God, I can do this again. And before you know, at some point down the way, who knows how long, but at some point down the way, the clouds start to part. And the sun starts to shine again. And hope kind of comes back. That doesn't happen if you lay in bed, though. Being occupied with worthy work is a gateway to soul rest. You know what? We're struggling. We're having a difficult time. Find somebody else to minister to. You know, for believers, our worst day is better, is better than, than the... How do I want to say this? Our, our worst day is better than the best day of a lost man. Because... I'm going to heaven when I die. The lost man is not doing that. And you know, it's easy in the midst of our despair and discouraging days to look around at lost people. And the devil will use this. Look around at lost people. It seems like, you know, what, Psalms, what is it? Psalm 70, is it Psalm oh, 73? Is it 73? Psalm 73, envious at the wicked. You know, and he goes on there for several verses. I'm at, you know, they're, nev they're never hindered. Hey, they never, they never have trouble in their life. They just go on and they're blessed and everything's great in their life. You ever been in the depths of despair and looked around at the world and thought, man, why, why, are, they, why are they so blessed? But you remember what the psalmist said there about halfway through the chapter, then I went into the house of the God and I understood their end. God has set their feet in slippery places. Listen, friend, what I'm telling you is our worst day is better than the best day of people that don't know God. Amen. And you know another thing about this. This story right here. So the Philistines are doing war with Israel. And you read a little bit further in the narrative. And what you're going to come across in just a very short order. Is that during this very time when they were dealing with this and David was struggling with these things, the Philistines were waging war against Israel, and in that battle, someone dies. Do you remember who? King Saul. King Saul is killed in this battle, and Jonathan, too. 
And guess who's the next king? We might be able to make the argument that David is at the lowest point of his life, at least to this point. He's been a fugitive for 15 years. He's been living with the Philistines for who knows how long. He offered to go fight against his own people. They didn't want him to go fight. He gets back home. The city's been burned down. His family's been carried captive along with all. His men want to kill him. And when all that's going on, outside of his knowledge, somewhere away where he doesn't know, Saul is falling on his own sword and dispatching his own life, lest the Philistines get a hold of him and disgrace his body. So the thing that he's been anticipating for God to do for 15 years, where is it? Where is it? My own men are wanting to kill me. I'm supposed to be king. Hey, you're about to be. I'm working that over across the second hill. That's coming to pass right now. But I'll tell you what, the thing about this is, is we just don't know anything. And we get discouraged and we get depressed because we think we know more than we do. My guess is, is if David had known Saul's going to die today, although he honored Saul in his death, but if he had known that, his heart would have been a lot lighter. He would have seen God's will that was expressed so many years ago coming to fruition. But it's interesting, God didn't let him know that when all of this was going on. It's as though God is saying, yeah, I'm doing this, but you need to trust me. And even if it doesn't happen today or next week or next month, you need to trust me. You know, our lowest point may be the night before our brightest day. It may be. So, I want to make sure and leave you with this process, hopefully firmly entrenched in your memory. There's six things here. David wept, and there will be times when we weep. David was distressed. There will be times when we are distressed. David encouraged himself. In times of distress, we must look up. David inquired Let us look up with the intention of giving God our attention instead of seeking His attention. David went, so let us be engaged in the work at hand. And then David pursued. Even when circumstances are not perfect, and oftentimes they won't be, let's stay the course. And I think if we'll do that and follow the pattern that David set before us here, we'll find ourselves having more soul rest even in very troubling days. Brother Dimlow.